All right, we are back and have lots of things to talk about. Unfortunately, for this particular segment, there appears to be no rhyme or reason to the topics. But then, as some of you would ask, how does that differ from a normal show? To which I guess I'm forced to reply, no difference. All right, item number one for this segment, a curiosity. Apparently, more than 50 years after his plane was downed in the Soviet Union... The late Francis Gary Powers was posthumously awarded the military's third highest decoration last week. Powers, a U-2 spy plane pilot whose story captured international attention during the Cold War, was awarded a silver star from the Air Force in a ceremony at the Pentagon. Of course, after his plane was downed back in 1960, which is quite a story, uh, basically disrupted a, uh, an international conference between Dwight Eisenhower and Nikita Khrushchev, and, of course, the CIA had been ordered to quit flying those flights over the USSR, but doggone it, they just seemed to have been unable to resist sending one, just one more, leading some to speculate that, you know, maybe they wanted it to get shot down. But we won't go into that today, but according to the obituary, according to the piece on this, Powers was subjected to 107 days of interrogation, followed by a public trial in Moscow. He was in prison for more than two years thereafter. When he finally returned to the U.S. in 1962, he was derided by some for being alive at all. I remember hearing about this in high school. He did have a poison pen with which he could have committed suicide, apparently. I remember one of my teachers in the seventh grade saying, you know, it's just ridiculous that he didn't, didn't kill himself for, you know, national honor and, and preventing the Ruskies from gaining secrets, etc. But note of the article on this, the Air Force citation accompanying Powers' Silver Star reads a bit differently. It cites Powers resisting all Soviet efforts through cajolery, trickery, and threats of death. Francis Gary Powers later took a job flying a traffic helicopter for a Los Angeles radio station. On August 1st, 1977, the helicopter that he was piloting ran out of fuel and crashed near Encino. Powers, who was 47, did not survive. I do hope that sometime we'll have a little segment talking about that curious incident from uh, Cold War history because there's, I think, more to that story. Among the tantalizing tidbits are the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald, future alleged presidential assassin, defected the Soviet Union shortly before Powers was shot down and had been a radar operator. He told the American embassy that he was going to defect and let them know any, all the secrets that he had. But you think an espionage case like that would mean that he would never be allowed back in the U.S. without a severe grilling, but boy, if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Oswald was later repatriated as if nothing had happened. Speaking about spying from, uh, from above the earth, here's a, a story that could turn out to be very, very good. Apparently, America's civilian space program, according to The Economist, is built atop its military one. Its rockets trace their ancestry via ballistic missiles designed to carry nuclear warheads into the Soviet Union, and before that, to the German V-2s that bombarded London and Antwerp during the Second World War. And of course, the space shuttle, which made its final flight last year, was used to launch satellites for the Air Force as well as carrying out its better publicized scientific missions. So when it was reported on June 4th that the National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO, one of the more secretive of America's plethora of spy agencies, had decided to donate two surplus spy satellite mirrors to NASA. Well, The Economist noted that news was less bizarre than it might have seemed. After all, NASA has benefited from spy technology before. The Hubble Space Telescope is essentially a redesigned spy satellite that points out into space instead of spying back down at the Earth. Note of The Economist, the news that America's spies had two spare satellite mirrors lying around has prompted speculation about their provenance. 
Both NASA and the NRL are tight-lipped about the specifics, but the new mirror assemblies have a shorter focal length than the Hubble's, allowing them to study patches of sky around 100 times larger. Although this deal's been in the works for about a year, it's not clear what NASA plans to do with this new bits of Army surplus gear. Well, we, sure don't know the, we sure don't know the answer to that, but boy, what a cool thing to be able to take uh, some relics of the Cold War and do some really neat science with it. And speaking of high technology items, we have two contrasting pieces in, in front of us right now. One, a special to the bee by Jack Stewart, president of the California Manufacturers and Technology Association, noting that disputed oil technology is safe and vital. Mr. Stewart is sounding off on the question of hydraulic fracking, which was recently the subject of an extensive piece in the Sacramento News and Review. Hydraulic fracking has not been a big issue in California. Mr. Stewart says it's been used here for decades without a single incident of risk or damage to water supplies, the environment, or public health. Of course, people are not, uh, not so sure about that back east, where as a result of hydraulic fracking, we're seeing a big surplus in, uh, in gas supplies driving down the price of gas, which is some, in some ways a better fuel to burn than things like coal and oil. On the other hand, busting through ancient strata in the Appalachians is causing water to be contaminated by, uh, by, by gas. And since we really don't know what we're doing in general to the whole ecosystem, is, is a cause for concern, shall we say. We've been promising to talk about this topic in the show, and we're going to do so. We just have to find the right guest. This one's a, a bit of a political and ecological hot potato. And another issue involving energy supplies and uh, disputed technology is the matter of deep sea drilling. Peace in the Men's Journal. May edition, titled Farther, Deeper, More Dangerous by Alex Prudhomme, it has, raises some very interesting questions about what we're up to on the seafloor. Noted Mr. Prudhomme, last December, mere months after government investigators released a damning report about BP's role in the 2010 Deepwater Horizon explosion, Big Oil was quietly pushing the limits of exploration into ever deeper, more environmentally sensitive regions. They note that the latest rigs, like Shell's $3 billion Perdido platform, 200 miles off the U.S. coast, can plunge drill bits almost two miles beneath the surface to hunt for hydrocarbons. One of Perdido's wells, Tobago, is in 9,600 feet of water, almost twice as deep as deep water, though newer rigs can drill in 12,000 feet of water. Article quotes Jack Belcher, an energy consultant in Houston, saying these platforms are some of the most sophisticated pieces of engineering on the planet. They are far, far more complicated than the Deepwater Horizon. The Deepwater, whose explosion killed 11 people and caused the worst offshore spill in U.S. history, was a free-floating vessel that drilled exploratory wells. The Perdido is a cylindrical platform that can simultaneously explore new prospects and pump oil from established fields. To do so, it accesses wells spread across 30 miles of seafloor. Peace notes that the Gulf of Mexico produces a quarter of the oil that is produced in the U.S. and remains the El Dorado of deep water drilling. Over 4,000 deep wells have been drilled there, 700 of which are more than 5,000 feet down. Noted the piece, but the deeper the drigs drill, the more challenging it becomes to respond to a blowout. Of course, some are arguing here that the Perdido is so far out in the Gulf that it takes 20 hours to reach it by boat, but that newly accessible Arctic oil fields are more remote and in more hazardous waters. To which he adds, the industry is quick to point out that big offshore disasters are rare, 
I don't know. We followed that story pretty closely, and it was just, you know, there's an awful lot of spin going on. Remember the bit about how shortly after they got it capped, they looked around and said, gee, looks like the oil has already been eaten up by microbes. Of course, then others took a little bit more comprehensive look and discovered, no, actually the seafloor appears to be covered with oil. Radio Parallax does have a source who apparently is involved in uh, studying the ecology down there in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll see if he'll speak to us, although I have a feeling it's probably going to be off the record. But uh, yours truly is going to see what he can find out about what really happened down there. And, of course, I don't know about you, dear listener, but, you know, when you're drilling 10,000 feet down (laughs) and something goes wrong, it's just a bit of a problem to fix. As we learned so sadly with, uh, you know, the deep water horizon. Of course, I guess we really are all a part of this problem if we drive automobiles. I guess as Michael Corleone says in The Godfather, we're all part of the same hypocrisy, Senator. But I do want to note that some of us are trying harder than others. I want to thank John Miles, who listens to Radio Parallax up on KZFR for the following, which is a YouTube clip from some dude who rented a car over in Europe observed the kind of gas mileage he was getting and was shocked. And we'll play a clip from this. So when I come back to the U.S., I called the local Volkswagen dealer. They said, yes, we have a Volkswagen TDI Passat. What's well, the mileage? 44 miles of the gallon. Well, no, I want the 1.6 Blue Motion TDI. Oh, oh, well, you can't get that in that model here. Well, why not? The U.S. government won't allow it. Now, I thought this was BS, so what I did is I started doing some research. Now, when you go online, if you go to Volkswagen America, check out the mileage, you'll see what they offer. Then, go back and make sure you type in Volkswagen of UK. And go to their specs and their, uh, let me see here, engine and performances. And you will see that the Blue Motion 1.6 TDI is 78.5 miles per gallon highway. 54 miles per gallon city with an average of 69 miles per gallon. So I've called a couple of news places. I, you know, people should be pissed off about this because the current administration is telling everybody we're going to demand that Detroit come and have better fuel efficiency. We know they can come up with it. Well, of course they can come up with it. After talking to my local dealer again today, he said, yes, we're very familiar with the motor. We can't sell it here. And I said, well, why can't they bring the motor in? He goes, look, it's worse than that. He goes, Volkswagens are made here in the U.S. that are used here in the U.S., most of them. He goes, we actually, at the factory, install that motor and manufacture that motor that you're talking about. But we're not allowed to even sell it here. We have to ship it to South America and other countries. He goes, also, Ford makes cars here that are up in the 70 miles per gallon, but they're not allowed to sell in the U.S. And I asked him why, and he said, well, originally they said, it was a, because they were too pollutant. They didn't have the efficiency. They put out approximately 10% more pollutants per gallon of fuel. And I quickly caught on, and he goes, yeah, you understand. When you work it out, though, it gets twice as good fuel efficiency, so it's actually less pollutant. But we don't base ours on the mileage, pollutants per mileage. We base it on pollutants per gallon of fuel. So when that was brought back to their attention, the administration said, current administration said, it's because of economic reasons. Well, if you sit down and you think about it, you can figure out the economic reasons. And this is what it is. If you've ever looked, our roads are repaired by a tax, and only by that tax. Very little unless it's subsidized by the federal government. 
is paid for any other way. So it's paid for through a gasoline tax. Now imagine if the vehicles were twice as fuel efficient, they would have half as much gasoline tax for the roadways. Pretty interesting and I think entirely credible. If you want to check out this uh, YouTube uh, video in its uh, entirety, which runs about twice as long as what you just heard, you can check out VW Passat 78.5 MPG. Or just probably VW Passat will probably pull it up. Anyway, all this talk about how we need to lean on Detroit and get better fuel economy, you know, even in Al Gore's movie, how we, you know, what we could do. Well, obviously we could do this. And it does appear, sadly, that uh, a major impediment to implementing such mileage standards is this idea that if we don't have the gas tax, we won't have the roads. Or I suspect even more likely that uh, certain corporations just don't want to see that. We could speculate on which corporations those might be, but I'm thinking things like Chevron and Exxon and Shell, along with BP, might be somewhere high on the list. But that is just a speculative opinion. An opinion which, like all those expressed in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. We do want to note that you do have to be careful, I think, when you express an opinion that it may be that certain entities that are supposed to look out for the public welfare may sometimes be unduly influenced by economic matters. Case in point is a local story involving Professor Michael Wilkes of UC Davis. Dr. Wilkes finds himself in a bit of a clash with the powers that be at UC Davis's medical school in the wake of some frank remarks he made in an op-ed piece in the San Francisco Chronicle back in 2010. Citing a piece from the Sacramento Bee by A. Gallo, June 19th, which starts up by noting that professors at UC Davis are calling for the reprimand of the School of Medicine's top leadership and legal counsel, who allegedly threatened to strip Professor Michael Wilkes of his title and resources for publicly criticizing a university-sponsored event. In a June 8th meeting, the UC Davis Academic Senate unanimously passed a resolution that said administrators and the legal counsel ought to accept responsibility for errors in judgment, write apology letters to Wilkes, and rescind their disciplinary actions. The senators also asked UC Davis Chancellor Linda Katehi to prevent academic freedom infringements. When queried by the B, deans at the med school said that academic freedom was fundamental to research, saying, quote, we respect and protect the rights of our faculty to pursue their research and teachings as they wish, so long as it is in a manner that is consistent with professional standards. Apparently this clash stems from a San Francisco Chronicle op-ed piece that Wilkes co-authored back in 2010 when UCD sponsored a men's health seminar. That seminar had a strong focus on prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, testing. Wilkes and Jerome Hoffman, a UCLA professor, questioned the medical school's promotion of the PSA test, one they deemed potentially harmful to men. The two also speculated that the School of Medicine was ignoring scientific evidence about PSA testing to bring in money for the school's Department of Urology. The piece quoted Hoffman as saying, the role of a medical university should be first and foremost public health, and it should not be other things, like money. We as a public need to demand from our universities that they not be primarily about making money and silencing critics. Peace notes that since that column ran, Wilkes and Hoffman's arguments about PSA testing has gained momentum. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force said in the final recommendation last month on May 21st that there is, quote, moderate or high certainty that the service 
has no benefit or that the harms outweigh the benefits, unquote. Shortly after Wilkes's op-ed piece was published, he was threatened by the university with losing his position as an instructor of record in the doctoring program, along with the resources for his Hungarian student exchange. Wilkes writes a bi-weekly column for the B titled Inside Medicine. He said when he approached administrators, he was given a chilly reception. He was quoted as saying, it's been an extremely unpleasant experience. They've questioned my credentials and background, which had been unquestioned until the day of the article. That's what led him to the university's academic senate, which launched a full investigation into Wilkes's brush with administrators. Wilkes said, I tried every other available option, and every door was closed in my face. Article goes on. Jonathan Eisen is the full professor at the university with appointments in both the College of Biological Sciences and the School of Medicine. He's been blogging and tweeting about Wilkes's case, though the two do not know each other. He said the argument about the medical school's role could be credible. Said, quote, it's not like he was pulling this out of a hat. This is front and center debate about the interaction between medical schools and companies. Wilkes and Eisen said they're disappointed with the administration. And quote, if they're really interested in defending UC Davis's reputation as they claim to be, why didn't they publicly write something about this? Why didn't they write something in the San Francisco Chronicle? It smells in every possible way of power and retribution. Despite the threats, Wilkes still holds his role as professor at the UC Davis School of Medicine and said he hopes to keep it. However, he's unsure if he'll be able to stay if administrators keep trying to redefine the School of Medicine's role. I love what the institution stands for, said Wilkes. It's the greatest. I would like very much not to leave. We will continue to follow that story. I do want to note, having been around the, the block a few times in medicine, having graduated medical school three decades ago, or almost three decades ago, and if you don't think that economics has something to do with how uh, hospitals and, uh, and institutions are run, well, <laughs> uh, I don't know. You should think that one through again. In fact, I've got a pretty good friend of mine who may speak off the record on this show who is an anesthesiologist, and he will tell very amusing stories about what the surgeons get to do. In fact, you don't have to be an anesthesiologist. You can ask anybody who knows about hospital administration about the power that surgeons have because Surgeries generate lots of money. Let's just say when it comes to throwing your weight around, surgeons have a lot of weight. It's a complicated issue, and one, one does have to have a nuanced view in this particular topic, and we'll do our best to have one when we talk about it in the future, which you can be sure we will do. And speaking of doctors, oh, you know what? We need to take a break. We'll come to that one in our third segment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. I know you deceived me, now here's a surprise I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes I can see for miles and miles 